Sabina, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So to kick things off, can you tell us a little bit more about your background, the path that sort of led you to your company, Hello World, the inspiration behind founding it, the entire enchilada? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I have a story like uh, many immigrant families. I, uh, my family moved from India at a young age. Uh, we lived in Queens, New York for many years. Um, you know, grew up in a low-income household. Uh, but e education was uh, kind of a theme of ours growing up. Um, it was always emphasized in my family, even though we didn't necessarily have great role models. Uh, who had gone far in education, we always understood and knew that this was the key not only to success in your life, but, you know, really living a life of, of higher um, consciousness and understanding. Um, so, you know, I even remember my parents being like, not only are you going to college or going to grad school, you know, and they didn't have, you know, grad degrees. A lot of my family members didn't, had not gone to college. So that's a little bit about my upbringing in terms of hello world so i to be really honest i'm not i wasn't one of those individuals that was like this is exactly what i want to do i'm going to go for this you know i had friends in the medical field uh, who knew exactly what they wanted to do but that was not me i was one of those students that i, I was like i'm going to get straight a's or try to um, you know, I, I want to perform well. I want to impress my, my parents and make sure they're happy with how I'm doing. Uh, but I never had a clear uh, passion or interest that I wanted to pursue until, and that's, I think this is pretty late in my life, but I went to grad school, uh, you know, at the Harvard Kennedy School, and I still didn't know what I wanted to do. I chose the Kennedy School because you know, when you do public policy, you can be in any sector of public policy. You can be in sustainability, sustainability. you can be in um, healthcare, you can be in education, you know, any field. So I'm like, all right, I, I, I still have some options here. Uh, so um, I then I took a course. So this was the first time when I felt like something struck a chord. You know, for me, I took a class called Entrepreneurship and Education Reform. Uh, this was at the business school. And I didn't, honestly, even to this day, I don't really care about the word entrepreneurship. I don't really see myself as an entrepreneur, see myself as an education leader. So that's not why I took that course. But in education reform, sounded really interesting to me. Um, and, you know, we read all of these case studies about, you know, different organizations like Green Dot, KIPP, um, you know, Amplify. Um, there are all these different, you know, nonprofits doing incredible work in education. I, and I remember reading one in particular um, called, um, it was about KIPP. Uh, so KIPP stands for Knowledge is Power program is, uh, I think, the largest charter school network in the U.S., something like 80,000 students spread across the U.S., started in Houston, started by a Teach for America alum. And there's a part in that case study 
you know, and then, you know, they target, you know, low-income communities, students of color who have been, you know, historically disenfranchised, uh, historically excluded uh, some of, from some of the most lucrative careers, you know, in our society. And so I read this case study, and there's a part of it that talks about the, like, shared contract. I don't know the exact wording, but it's like everybody signs a contract. The child, the parent, and the teacher. And on the parent contract, it says things like, I commit to, you know, helping my child with homework. I commit to dropping them off every day at this time. I commit to, you know, being aware of how they're doing and how they're performing and being involved in their lives. And I just remember seeing that and just really being moved by the level of involvement by a school in a family personal life, you know, I remember they even did home visits, you know, they, these, these school leaders, you know, they, um, they went to families' homes when they first started and got them invested in what they were doing. So different from what I had experienced. I'm like, this sounds incredible. And that's when I was like, oh man, finally, I feel a spark somewhere. I care about this. I want to do this and I'm not doing it to impress anyone. You know, I'm not doing it because it's the right thing to do. I'm doing it because I want to. And it was a little tricky, honestly, at that time, because, you know, when you, you, when you graduate from the Harvard Kennedy School, you don't think you're going to go and teach, <laughs> go into education and do, you know, Teach for America. In my case, a program I highly respect, um, you know, at that time, folks that were graduating were going to work for the World Health Organization, the World Bank, the UN, and they're going to go be diplomats and ambassadors and all of these things. And I was like, I'm going in the classroom and I'm going to be working with 30 kids, you know. That's, that's fascinating. And I imagine it sounds like there was a bit of an epiphany that you had when you saw the approach that this school had taken, that education could sort of stray off of the beaten path and take a new refreshed approach that may resonate a little bit more and engage all of the stakeholder stakeholders involved in the educational process a little bit more. Uh, it sounds like that epiphany sort of was part of what influenced you to eventually move into the educational space. Absolutely. Yes. You know, I think I was just, I felt moved by it. And, you know, I, I don't reflect on this probably often enough, but having grown up, you know, and I don't love going on a tangent here. You know, I'm not trying to share a thought story, but, you know, we were not well off, especially when I was really young. You know, we lived in a studio apartment, no bedrooms. You know, there was like this like wardrobe dividing my parents' room with our room. And we had a mattress on the floor and no bed frames, you know, but I think, when I read that case study, I, I, a part of me was like, it's really hard to get out of that place. And it's really difficult for parents to have kids in that place. And so, you know, for the first time, I found, uh, you know, what I believe to be one of the greatest challenges of our generation that really struck, you know, a chord within me emotionally. And that's what I think folks should look for because. Once you find that, you don't care about what other, how, you know, how successful you are, uh, you know, how far you go. You're driven by the impact that you're making. Um, and so that was absolutely, 
you know, the moment for me. And so after that, I went into the classroom and I wanted to be on the front lines. It was very obvious to me that I didn't want to just go in and be on the periphery of the education system. I was like, I want to be smack dab in the middle and I want to understand all of those things like pedagogy and like motivation, uh, culturally responsive teaching, uh, socio-emotional learning. I'm like, I want to be able to create that magic myself. I want to, I want to like really get in it, you know, and I will tell you, those were the hardest years of my life. It was so challenging. It was so difficult. The students were incredible. You know, I taught in Bed-Stuy, New York, uh, partly because it was close to where I had grown up. Um, students were incredible. Families were incredible. But we were incredibly under-resourced. And not all students, but men, most of the students, were a year to two to three years behind in reading and math, you know, and, and science. Um, and you feel a lot of pressure, right? Like, it's on you. What are you going to do to change the trajectory of these students' lives? What are you going to do? Um, I've never worked so hard. You know, I remember I was uh, you know, I worked seven days a week. I was the last person out of the school. I literally have so many memories of the janitor, Cheryl, coming to my uh, my classroom, being like, Sabina, lock the doors, the heavy metal doors on the way out. And, uh, you know, it's not even allowed. <laughs> it's like, but I'm not going to stay after you. I left till I like at 11 p.m. Um, but you, you, you know, when you're, when you interface that closely, with students living below the poverty line, when you start to really um, like care about them, that's the thing that keeps you up at night. You know, it's your responsibility. What are you going to do? So, you know, that is probably the the sentiment that I have. You know, I'll share a quick story. Uh, it makes me, it gets, it makes, you know, it makes me emotional every time I share it. But try to move past it. Basically, I had a student. Um, I won't share his name, but um, everybody knew that this student had a crush on another student in the other class, okay? And uh, that other student was that she was having a birthday party. And so we're all waiting for the student in my class for him to get a, a birthday card and he, uh, a birthday invitation. He gets one, right? He gets the birthday invitation. We're all excited. It's like the cutest thing ever. And uh, this was elementary school at the time, so it was fourth grade. And then the Monday after the birthday party, I was standing in line, and he's right, uh, you know, next to me. And I, I ask him, I'm like, hey, how was the birthday party? You know, uh, and he, he tells me, he says, really casually, as if it's nothing. He goes, oh, man, you know, I couldn't go. The bus fare. Um, and then he changes the subject like it's nothing. Right. Ah, that is so hard to hear. Um, and there's so many moments like that. Right. The bus fare at that time was a dollar thirty five. I know that um, to get to where he needs to go. But, you know, so when you when you're that close to poverty and you lived it to some degree, nothing like these students, but to some degree, you are, you know, as an education professional, you will continue to ask the question, what am I going to do to change this trajectory of students' lives? And that 
over time, I have learned, at least from my skill set and from my vantage point, is absolutely computer science. That is the answer. That is like, you know, if you, if our ultimate goal is to place students into positions of power and influence, that's our ultimate goal at Hello World. If it's to place students that have historically been excluded into positions of power and influence, then computer science is a surefire way of doing that more so than I believe any other subject because of what computer science, the nature of what that topic is. Wow, uh, and thank you for sharing such a powerful story. I, I mean, it, it sounds, it, it resonates a lot with myself as well. Uh, I, I, my family immigrated to America from Pakistan when uh, I was around five or six years old and we settled down in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn and grew up in a, I think it was a one bedroom household, uh, so very, very similar. Uh, to your upbringing. And I, I think in a way it sounds like, and I kind of feel this too, the emphasis on education was a bit of a privilege. Uh, compared to a lot of my extended family, my family had emphasized education a lot more. And then over time, education really became the key that helped us overcome the odds and sort of overcome the obstacles that uh, were keeping us in poverty. And it sounds like you realize that education could be such a powerful key for unlocking a lot of opportunities for these students. And it became, it seems like the prime focus of your life was making sure that more and more students had that key and were able to find the same experiences and find their way out of those circumstances like you did. Absolutely. Um, that's, that's great that we share that because, you know, you can emphasize with a lot of, you know, the upbringing and with, with, at least some part of what these students are going through. Um, and within that, within education, to me, I think there are people that are doing extraordinary things and math and ELA, using technology, you know, but there's work to be done in computer science. There is work to be done because it is very easy, and I see this time and time again and it worries me, but it is very easy to make computer science look flashy. And edutainment, as some people call it, is very easy. And, you know, I don't blame them, but school leaders, district leaders, superintendents, they don't know what, what's rigorous versus what's not. They didn't study computer science, you know, and so there is work to be done. And I, I you know, I, I hope we're part of the solution. Absolutely. I'm sure you are and, and you will continue to be. And I'm curious, what was the moment that you realized it was computer science that was really going to give these students the best, quote unquote, return on investment for the time that they're going to be spending learning these extra skills that they may not be learning in their day to day schooling? When did you decide to settle on computer science? And was there like a specific moment or was it just over a period of time that you came to that realization? I don't think it's a great question. I don't think it was a particular moment for this. Specifically, I took, you know, I studied math for undergrad and I took a handful of computer science courses. And as you can imagine, Haroon, everyone, almost everyone in those classes were white. Almost everybody was male. Um, you know, but I didn't, I don't think I was as reflective back then. Uh, and I, I didn't, you know, think of computer science as, and the way that I do today. 
And, you know, eventually what I came to learn about computer science just by reading about just industry and leaders um, and the types of skills they need to apply, not whether they have a computer science degree or not, but the types of skills you need to apply, you know, in the face of a very complex world that's where, you know, change is the only norm. It, you need a set of tools that transcend subjects and fields of study. And that's what people don't get about computer science. It's that it's not a singular field of study. It is a mindset. It is a mindset of algorithmic and computational thinking that sets you up to problem solve. That's what it is, right? And the, the, the more you can interface that ability of computational thinking with other fields of study, the more powerful you become like things like how does climate change, you know, impact my county? I'm thinking of some of the projects we do at Hello World. You know, how how prevalent is gerrymandering? Um, you know, what is the impact of social media? Uh, you know, and how should we design software uh, to make media recommendation? How quickly will the pandemic spread? Um, you know, how how reliable are uh, genetic ancestry tests. I can go on. We have so many different projects like this, but when you use computer science, the tools of computer science, you are getting a, a, a tool set that's incredibly powerful, and you're marrying that with like a set of you know social consciousness tools. If it's done right, <laughs> often it is not, but if it's done right. You can marry the two together and basically problem solve around anything. That's what computer science is. And it's just so unfortunate that nowadays it's just gone down to being diluted into coding, which is not computer science. You know, it's coding is a means. It's a means to push algorithmic thinking, but it's very much a part of that larger umbrella of what is computer science. I, I couldn't agree more with you. And you know, just, just from my own personal experience, I always considered myself an artistic person growing up. I always considered myself more of a, I forget if it's the left, left side of the brain, right side of the brain, but it was the artistic side basically. And I, I never really thought I could learn how to program. I never really thought I could get into a more technical field. And it was in college that I started trying to learn Python. And for the longest time, I would just try to learn the very basics. Just I think at that point, I was learning how to build functions in Python. And I was just struggling to wrap my head around it conceptually. And I talked to a lot of folks, and they all told me the same thing. They said, there's going to come a moment when you're learning how to program that it's just going to click. And I didn't believe them. But lo and behold, I pushed through it. I pushed through those obstacles and the difficulty of, of learning Python. And there was a moment when absolutely it clicked. It seemed like overnight, my thinking pattern had changed. I was able to understand how programming actually worked. I know that sounds a bit ambiguous, but that's how it felt in the moment. And I would say that marked a 
complete transformation in just the way I think about everything. It made me much more logical, much more structured, much more organized in my thinking processes. And I think it's especially powerful for folks that may not be naturally inclined to think that way. Some folks just, they just get it. They're, they get it at a young age, they can pick up programming and it, it just makes sense to them right off the bat. And I think that's great. Those folks can become excellent, excellent computer scientists or uh, whatever they choose to be. I think it's especially powerful when somebody that comes from a non-traditional background, non-technical background, somebody with maybe a little bit of an interest in the arts or the humanity, something traditionally non-technical, and they learn how to think in a more programmatic type of way because then they're able to get a little bit of both. And that combination, I think there's a lot of opportunity, a lot of impact to be made at that intersection. So it, it sounds like Hello World, one of the main focuses that your organization is focusing on is making sure that students have a more holistic understanding because there's kind of a synergistic effect that is realized when you have somebody learn about the logical side of programming as well as some of the more well-rounded aspects. Yes, 100%. You know, the way I think of it is computer science is the ability to take a large abstract challenge or problem, which looks different to like an eight-year-old, right, than a 35-year-old. But you take a large abstract challenge or opportunity, like you want to start a company, for example, right? You can break it down into a thousand pieces, sequence them, and tackle one at a time. Now, tell me one scenario that's challenging to figure out where that skill set is not relevant, you know? Um, so I completely agree. There was a, an analogy that uh, someone gave me. Uh, her name is Chin Chin. She's the you know, head of engineering at a local uh, company here called uh, Ojo Lab. But she said, you know, because sometimes we get pushback. You know, people are like, oh, you're teaching coding, right? That's what that is. And we're like, that's not it. We're not trying to make everyone engineer. That's not what we're trying to do. And she said, you know, the way to think about it is, you know, the code, like painters, you're getting someone to do a paint job. They know how to code, right? The language changes or the, the, the way that you do the job changes. Like they have to relearn the skill of coding. But you teach someone computer science and they're the artist. And it doesn't matter what color the paint is, what type of canvas you have. You will figure it out because it's a way of thinking, you know, and I'm so glad you understand this. And I just, and I, but I worry, you know, I worry about how this is not, folks don't think of, folks think of computer science as an elective. It is an elective class. It starts in most places, especially low-income areas in high school. Can you imagine starting for the first time in high school? What if you taught, you started math in high school? What if the first math class you took was in ninth grade? or an elective option, what a disadvantage. And that's what it is, that's the comparison. I say it's the math from 200 years ago. That's what computer science is, you know? And I don't know how quickly we'll get there. So tell us a little bit more about Hello World. What sort of grades do you interact with the most? What are, how do the operations run? Is it 
mostly after school based is do you work with schools and integrate the program with school curriculum? How does it work? And what does your curriculum look like in general? Yeah. So big picture, we are a SaaS business that licenses curriculum by students to school. Um, so just, you know, in plain our text, we have a curriculum, a platform, an online platform, like a Coursera, you know, that we go to schools and we say, this is an end-to-end rigorous engaging solution for computer science for third through 12th grade. I think there's a lot of tools off the shelf before third grade, often free, um, that folks can use. Um, third through 12th grade tools that we go to a school and we say, we'll give you license to a seat, you pay us per student, and then they use it, and then we provide professional development and implementation support. That's what we are today. Um, we teach many different courses. Um, you know, we're in the process, fingers crossed, of being endorsed for the AP courses, CSA, CSP, Computer Science Principles. Um, we teach art, definitely data science and artificial intelligence. That is easily my favorite course that we offer, easily, because it harnesses the true potential of computer science to be interdisciplinary in a way that other content areas simply cannot, right? You can, all of those questions I listed out, you can do that with data science and AI. It's very difficult to do that with like web development, for example. So, uh, you know, we teach data science AI, uh, we teach those AP courses, we teach iOS mobile app development, uh, VR, a few other courses. Uh, but the, the bottom line is you're, you're using these courses as a, a medium to teach computer science, computational algorithmic thinking abilities. Um, I will say we did not start that way. We've evolved a ton. You know, if we were talking five years ago, uh, I don't think what we had was very impressive. And that's the art of iterating and incremental growth. Uh, but yes, that's what we are today. And how has the business evolved during COVID? I imagine it's, I mean, it's forced just about every single business to have to pivot at least slightly. How has Hello World had to adapt to the pandemic and the situation that left students either out of school or working from home or, or sorry, taking school from home? Yeah, absolutely. So there's been pros and cons uh, for us. The first is that um, I, I'm, I'm going to name the biggest pro that I, I, I don't know how else this would have happened. This to us is the silver lining of COVID which is that in the development of the K-12, especially public school system infrastructure for devices and internet has skyrocketed. I mean, something like 60% of schools, public schools were, you know, met the FCC's goals around infrastructure or something pre-pandemic. It's like at 91% now. That kind of growth, we have never seen, and it is very advantageous 
for a business like ours and so many other ed tech companies that are, you know, really trying to serve students, teachers, and their families. Um, that has been just huge because in the past, you know, we just went into the SaaS model, but, you know, before the pandemic, when we talk to schools, they say, oh, we don't have one-to-one -one tech. Not every student has a computer. So can you, can you work in groups? And we're like, no, really? So that's been a huge plus for us. Um, the cons, I mean, you know, yeah, revenue took a hit for sure. We weren't ready with the SaaS platform when the, when COVID first happened. We were running our own program, um, you know, and I don't blame students, but they're all, they got over Zoom pretty quickly. You also can't charge as much, you know, when you're doing an online program. Uh, we couldn't do nearly as many events. We, would, we did, you know, events at almost every library locally. But back to uh, the last pro I'll share is that it made us accelerate our transition to be a fast business much faster because we couldn't do these in-person things. And we had so much more time. You're not driving to and our whole team, right? We're not driving to and from school. For better or for worse, no one's taking a vacation. Right? No one took a day off for like a year, um, you know, and it just made us move towards the SaaS model that we're in today a lot more quickly. That's amazing. Yeah, it's uh, very interesting how so many industries have evolved and how technology has become so much uh, more widely adopted as a result of the, the pandemic. And now I, I want to ask you, Obviously, technology has eaten the world, especially over the past couple of decades. And I think there's nobody on the planet that can deny the fact that software and te technology are taking over the planet and have affected virtually every single aspect of our lives. And I'm curious, why have school districts, certain school districts, been so slow to adopt computer science curriculum at a sort of earlier stage? And um, how has Hello World sort of push to include some of these programs in these students' uh, sort of day-to-day. -day. How has that worked out? And have you gotten any pushback as, as a result? Have you gotten more affirmation as a result? It's such a good question. I'm here listing like, well, here are all the laundry list of reasons. Um, you know, there's a couple. So I think the main one and you know, we could talk about this for hours, but I, if I'm being really honest and boiling it down, the main reason computer science has not been as widely adopted as many people, I mean, parents, school leaders, superintendents, something like 68% of superintendents agree that computer science is a high priority. Computer science has uh, was a major ed tech training topic. Uh, according to EdSurge, uh, in like 2018 or something, they did like a big report on trends in ed tech. But one of the main reasons is that it's not a tested subject, right? So, you know, when the No Child Left Behind legislation passed, it started tying school funding. How much do you get, you know, for operating your school, especially per pupil, to test score results? 
not only funding, but the grade of your school. Are you a blue ribbon school? Are you A, B, C school? There's all these different, you know, different states use different things. They're tied to test scores. Now, if you're in an affluent school, not even a private school, but an affluent public school where your parents are educated, you started reading when you were one week old, and all of these things, the school is not paying attention to a test score. They just know, like, you'll be fine. You know, it's a pretty well-resourced school. The local property taxes are really high. We're funding all kinds of stuff at the school, right? We have all AP courses, all this stuff. But if you're a low-income school that's losing kids, and when you lose kids, you lose funding, Right? Those test scores matter a lot. And so when computer science is nowhere near, nobody tests for computer science, how are schools going to be like, sure, let's put X amount of funding, percentage of funding to computer science, a non-tested subject. You will see less and less of that to lower income the school, right? So that's the main reason. It's not a tested subject. I'm not saying it should be. I I think that whole system can cause for some really strange um, priorities and decision-making. But that's the first thing. Do you have a thought on that? No, I'm just really curious if that's bound to change, what your thoughts are on how that's going to evolve in the future. I don't know, honestly. I don't know if it will ever become a core subject because the two main especially at a national level, tests of subject or math and ELA, not even science and social studies. Like if you talk to any teacher from a low-income school, they will tell you there is a hierarchy of who gets the most resources and where the most sheer minutes in a school day go. And it's something like this, ELA math, science, social studies, you know, and then the electives. It's like art, PE, and computer science is right over here. And I don't, I don't know if I ever see computer science becoming core subject, certainly not in the youngest grades. But that leads me to another piece, which is mandate and funding. When state and local education agencies get funding for something, and the and mandates, you can't just have mandates. You can't just say every kid is required to blah, blah, blah. You have to say, here's a mandate, and if you do this, we'll pay you, we'll give you funds. When you those two things come together, more and more computer science courses get offered. And that is happening. That is trending towards, you know, more and more policies are being passed. I mean, even here in Texas, um, career and uh, technical education used to be, uh, you know, woodshop and, and, you know, a host of other courses, they just moved computer science under that to allow for more easy funding. All of a sudden, more schools, middle schools specifically, are offering computer science. So that's happening. I think the two other challenges, and these are, you know, lower on the list, but actually this one's pretty important, is the talent, right? Computer science grads are going to work at TikTok. They're not going in the classroom. Right. So what do you do? Um, And these are difficult concepts to teach and be trained in. So there's a real challenge with just recruitment, which is why, uh, you know, at at least at Hello World, and I think this is true for a lot of computer science organizations, 
You don't have to have a computer science background to teach the curriculum, but I will say that the curriculum needs to do a lot of the heavy lifting. It's got to do a lot of the work and, and allow students to drive their own learning and push, you know, and get to really high levels of rigor without the teacher's knowledge. The students have to be able to surpass the teacher. That's something we talk about often. The students have to be able, will and should surpass you, Miss Johnson. You know what I mean? So that's the thing, that's one thing. And then the last thing, very last thing I'll say is I don't believe that there is a curriculum out there outside of Hello World that's meant for K-12, that harnesses computer science and its abilities the way that it should for a student with the critical thinking, with the interdisciplinary learning, with the ethics and society component. I don't believe that. I haven't seen it. If I do, I will quit or merge or do something, but I have not seen it. Uh, and I think that's really lacking in the space as well. Gotcha. And in terms of Hello World's interaction with these schools, what sort of schools are you mainly targeting? Is it schools that are receiving funding to pursue computer science programs that they want to reduce the sort of cost to adoption and you have a packaged service that you can offer them without the need for them to develop a curriculum on their own? Or are you finding that wealthier schools are looking for something similar? I am curious uh, what the needs and the wants of the schools that approach you and that work with you uh, are and how you integrate with those schools. We want to target low-income schools. So going into this fall, 80% of our student users will be at Title I schools. Um, that's really important to us. Hello World will be an absolute failure if we don't move the needle for those communities, right? So that's the first thing. Um, we do get the, the biggest want that I hear from schools is that they want to have a state-of-the-art computer science program faster and for less money. <laughs> and that's what we're trying to build, right? You should be able to implement this this fall, right? We're going to train your teachers. You have it ready to go in this fall. You can tell parents who are leaving your school because you've got a low grade or whatever, that you have a state-of-the-art, world-class computer science program that you are offering. Um, one thing I'll name is that we do get interest from wealthier schools and districts. And I just want to share that, like, that's a good thing for us. I, I always, I never understood this dichotomy of, like, you know, certain organizations being like only targeting low-income schools. They remind me of separate but equal a little bit, you know, like the, um, I forget what they're called, but the big like robotics league, you know, it's mostly affluent schools. It's really expensive to get those programs. And then there's programs like Girls Who Code, you know, and I've seen their programs, you know, in action. And it's usually all, you know, low-income students of color. And I'm like, why? I'm, ho I'm hoping that the quality of these programs are equal, but I can't help but wonder. Like, you know, and, and so when we get asked by affluent communities, and even many individual parents as well, you know, to come to their schools, I say, good. 
And I say, yes, we will. Not all of them, but 20% of them, because I want to demonstrate that, you know, the, the student at the most affluent, you know, private, prestigious private school are, are going to, or could, are going after and want the same content and learning experiences as these schools. And I think that should be true. Um, so I'll just name that. That's really interesting. And, you know, I, I'm going to play devil's advocate for just a second. And before I do that, I, I, I want to say I completely agree with you. And a little bit of behind the scenes with AI for anyone. We started off with a pure focus on schools that serve a high percentage of low-income students. So we found that there was a lot of benefits to sort of broadening that scope. And uh, now we serve just about any school that's interested in bringing us in for a workshop or in learning the basics of AI. So I completely agree with you there. But I think a lot of folks may say that there needs to be certain organizations that are meant to purely level the playing field. Now, in my mind, this seems like a bit of a misunderstanding of the situation, but uh, I'm curious your thoughts on what, how you would respond to somebody that might say, the reason that a lot of organizations, uh, organizations like Hello World uh, should focus on low-income students is so that they can help level the playing field. What would your response be to somebody that might say that? This is so interesting to me. So I think it depends on your interpretation of leveling the playing field. Because when I hear that, I picture a very different world. This is what scares me. You have affluent students who are around peers that look just like them, mostly white, really rich, who never talk about things like ethics and you know, low-income communities and read articles about that or interact with the other students of color. When you level the playing field, it's not just about bringing this group up intellectually. It's about raising the social awareness and consciousness of the entire society. I'll give you a case in point, the Black Lives Matter movement. That's been going on forever. <laughs> it didn't start, you know, four or five years ago, you know, but because of that movement, more and more people are aware and understanding that, yes, racism exists. I should be an anti-racist. I should play an active role in this society to raise other people up. So when you look at our curriculum, I'll give you a really, really concrete example. We have a project called the you know, Bike Share Program, the High School Data Science AI Project, where it took us a month to put this project together. We reached out to Indigo, which is a bike share program in Philadelphia. We said, give us your data. They gave us hundreds of thousands of lines of data. And we created a project where we tasked students to comb through this data and propose to the mayor of Philadelphia what kiosk they should build. Now, what bike share station should they build? Um, you know, and they have a limited budget. You know, you can only build three. Here are 15 proposals. What would you do as the advisor and consultant to the mayor of Philadelphia? Now, we could have stopped there. It's a rigorous program. It's very challenging. You have to look at, you know, 
commuter traffic between stations, you know, when, who's using them? Are they, um, you know, are these locals? Are they tourists? Like, who's using them? We couldn't stop there. But instead, we now have add another layer of social consciousness, awareness, ethics, and equity, where we said, now read these articles about the harms and benefits of bike share programs. And what you come to realize is that there's a trend in the U.S. to place these kiosks in a places that are more favorable to tourists than even low-income communities. And it, it effectively does not help low-income communities commute to work when you don't have a car. And then because of this research, there are now partnerships happening with food stamp programs and bike share programs. If you have a food stamp card, you can use a bike share card, you know, bike for free. Now, add that layer and bring this curriculum to affluent schools. That, to me, is a much more, you know, impactful way of, of leveling the playing field. Let's stop ignoring the privileged students. Because what I learned from the Black Lives Matter movement is that people do care. It is very difficult to watch someone in a chokehold lose their life. You will elicit empathy. You will. And, you know, that's what we're trying to do with our curriculum. So I think it is a mistake if you only go after students that you're like, we need to raise whatever. It's like, you need to go after everybody and everyone needs to be talking to each other and everyone needs to be covering their intellectual awareness on many different dimensions, not just computer science in isolation, but computer science with ethics. Wow. I absolutely love that answer. I, I think that makes a ton of sense. And I completely agree with you as well. It's not like you're furthering the divide. You're actually getting everyone on the same page. And because Hello World is focusing on such a well-rounded curriculum rather than just teaching pure skills with the absence of some of the more important topics like ethics, that it's very important for folks that are in more privileged positions to develop that empathy, develop a better understanding of how those biases may exist today and how they may be per perpetuated, uh, sorry, how they may be perpetuated through technologies like artificial intelligence. Uh, so Sabina, I'm going to pause right there very quickly. Uh, so I was planning on uh, sort of wrapping up here, talking a little bit more about like the future. Um, so the future of Hello World, uh, uh, your thoughts on the future of education, um, I, I wanted to touch base and just make sure there wasn't any other aspect of uh, Hello World or your background that you wanted to cover beforehand. Nothing comes to mind. This has been a really fun conversation for me so far. You yeah, know, and you're asking some really, really great questions. Yeah. I yeah, th this has been this has been awesome so far, and I um, yeah. So I'll jump into the questions about the future and. Uh, uh, hopefully it won't be in, uh, more than another five, 10 minutes. Uh, I, I, I would try to keep it under 45 minutes, but it's been a great conversation. So it's been, uh, close to an hour actually. Okay. Uh, so Sabina, I want to talk a little bit more about the future of education, your thoughts on how computer science literacy might evolve, and also the future of hello world. So you mentioned why school districts have been slow to adopt computer science in certain jurisdictions. Now, what can students do if they don't have the 
tools or resources accessible to them to learn about computer science? What, what could students that might be listening to this show right now that are interested in pursuing computer science as an educational subject, what can they do today in order to either bring computer science into their school and have it taught to their classes or their, their fellow classmates or to learn it on their own? What would you suggest to them? Absolutely. Um, you know, the, the, I'll answer the second question first, which is there are resources out there. You know, my favorite is probably Khan Academy for K-12. Uh, I don't I don't think it's been a huge focus for them, so there's not like a ton of projects, like maybe you'll see in Khan Academy Map or something like that, but they do have some pretty rigorous projects uh, on Khan Academy. I think Code.org is another one most folks are familiar with. Um, but, you know, the what I would say about learning it yourself, and I, I heard this from another speaker that we had at Hello World, is that Find what drives you. Find the thing that you think is interesting related to computer science. You really got to think about that because I said at the beginning, I was the kind of person that's like, I don't know what I care about. Let me just follow the herd and, and do well enough. You know, so I'm kind of going against even what I did. But if you like reading stories about AI, read stories about AI. If you like you know, understanding what the latest researchers do that. If you like building programs and puzzling things out, do that. But don't just do it because you feel like you need to check it off the list. Find the part of it that you think is fascinating and really double down on that. Because what's neat about that, and kind of draw a parallel to my pursuit of, you know, equity in education, is that it won't feel forced. It'll feel like fun. So that's the piece I would say about doing it yourself. The second thing, and I think you alluded to this, Haroon, is just advocate for it. You know, advocate for it. I've seen students, uh, you know, the March for Our Lives movement. You know, students can make a tremendous difference in our society, in many cases more than policymakers. Advocate for it. Understand that it is... You know, it, it, it really can change the trajectory of your life and the lives of your peers and the lives of students that will go to your school after you. So advocate for computer, rigorous computer science programs at your school. Love it. And for any adults that might be listening to this show who might think that they're maybe over the hill here and they don't really have a need to learn about computer science, what would you say to those adults? Yeah, this is tricky for me because I'm, I don't feel like I'm in a position right, to tell adults, like, you should do this. But what I'll share about computer science, even as adults, is that you get to understand how software works. You know, and, and that, that is definitely very relevant in the tech space. All parts of the tech space, the design space, the product space, all of those roles, you really understand how software works, uh, you know, if you start experimenting with computer science. I'd also say there's a real choice in learning something challenging. You know, as adults, myself included, we forget this. You know, there's a, um, 
I believe he passed away not too long ago, but uh, there was a professor at MIT, uh, you know, kind of a philosopher, education advocate and philosopher named Seymour Papert, uh, and he believed in this concept of hard fun, which is where you, you understand that nothing is more rewarding, nothing is more gratifying than doing work that is challenging. And so, you know, just keeping that in mind, I can see, you know, folks really getting the, experiencing the joy of the challenge of computer science. The last thing I'll say for adults is they can build content, you know, a real sense of pride and, and being able to build something worthwhile, um, you know, even if you're, it's not obvious to you how you might apply it. That's great. Thank you very much for that. And tell us a little bit more about the future of Hello World. Do you plan on offering a self-service option so folks can log in and go through the curriculum on their own without the sort of need through to, to go through a uh, formalized program? Um, what are some things that are on the roadmap that you're especially excited about and that you're able to share with our audience? So eventually, I would love for Hello World to be free and available to everyone. You know, you, you need a pretty um, altruistic backer for that to happen, but I've seen it happen before. Um, but, uh, you know, for now, our focus is schools, it's K-12 schools. And I say that mainly because of selection bias. You know, the students that are leads likely to get it are the ones that, the, the best way to reach them is through the school because they are in school, you know? So the school is our first target audience. But yeah, I think in the, in the future, I can definitely see us, um, you know, growing beyond that. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, the focus right now is K-12 school. Okay, Sabina, so we have uh, just a couple of rapid fire fun questions for you to answer. So if you had unlimited funds, what would you do with the money? <laughs> I mean, I, I can't help but think of all the world, but I would uh, hire a bunch of engineers, a bunch of product managers. Uh, I would build a ton of content. I would host a lot of conferences for teachers. And I would make it free, all of it. Love it, love it. And what is, or sorry, and uh, the second question is, who is your favorite celebrity or celebrity that you completely obsess over if you have one? Favorite celebrity. I don't know if I have a favorite, but I will share someone that I'm a fan of. And this is funny, Haru, because you know this person. I think you've worked with him or his team, but Mark Cuban is one of them. And I say that only because if you ever watch Shark Tank, it's anytime someone's like a real hustler, like they knock on doors, they go to door to door, they, they self-funded, they bootstrap, or like, you know, whatever it is, like they're like a real hustler, the camera always turns to Mark and gets his reaction because he loves that so much. Um, you know what I, I, not that I am that person, but I try to be that person. I try. Uh, so yeah, I think it's, 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 it's pretty, it'd be pretty neat to like, see him speak in live or something like that, you know? Yeah, he just, uh, he, he, he has a way of getting people just very, very energized. I mean, he's as pure an entrepreneur, entrepreneur as they come. Awesome. Well, Sabina, thank you so much for a wonderful conversation. Thank you, Harold. I appreciate it. Thank you.